Foster Care Nation. Listen up. This is Foster Care and Unparalleled Terminator. Strength for the powerless. Courage for the fearful. Hope and healing for wounded hearts. Hello and welcome back to Foster Care, an unparalleled journey with Jason. And again, no Amanda. Sorry guys, but Amanda is off taking care of kids today. She gets the, uh, well, some might think she gets the harder end of the stick, but I, I don't know. I like hanging out with the little ones. It's fun because, you know, they're like eight months, five years old, seven years old. I think intellectually, me and them, we all hang out together a lot because we think like each other. <laughs> but... We have Galen Elmore here with us today. How you doing today, man? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, Jason. Hey, I'm glad to have you. I'm glad to have you here because I've seen just a little bit of your story. I haven't had a chance to to get the whole story down yet. And it looks like, dude, you got a story of adversity and overcoming. And yeah. I, I was I was seeing something that, that I want to talk about later that when I was looking through your social media, and it was a couple posts where you had the words Victim, Victor, Vessel. Mm -hmm. And that sounds like a pathway that I really want to explore before we get done here. Because, especially that last part. Because we all think that, you know, going from a victim to a victor is the end of it. But I I really want to hear you talk about becoming a vessel at the end here. Definitely. So I would love that opportunity. So tell me about your story, man. How how did you get involved in foster care? Yeah, so I'm the youngest. I've five siblings, all half. Um, and I was the youngest born into, um, my born to my mom and dad who are my mom's European American. My dad is African American. So I'm multiracial and, uh, just born into a family that just only knew struggle. And, um, my parents are really high functioning addicts and alcoholics. Um, and that, that really plagued us. And it was a generational thing. It wasn't, it wasn't something they just picked up out of happenstance. It's something that they knew very well from their parents and their parents' parents. And so um, that just impacted our family to the point where their addiction and their dependency on alcohol took precedent over us as their children. And um, that's how it was when I was a kid. And the first time I spent time in foster care, I was 10 months old. And it was after my dad uh for whatever reason, felt like he needed to go get help um, and tried to look into resources and avenues that were going to um, just help our family get better and get healthy. And one thing led to another and somehow uh, DCFS ended up getting contacted, uh, which removed us from our home and, and really put us into the system for the rest of my young adult life, basically, um, or childhood and into my young adult life. And so, yeah, that it's an unfortunate way to, it's not a traditional way. I don't think that, that a lot of people end up in foster care, but, um, yeah, that's how, that's how my story began, man. I don't know. I don't know. I would, I would say that that's becoming a more traditional method. Um, Mm -hmm. addiction is something that we have seen in our experience with the 20 or so kids that have come through our house. I think, I think probably at least 75% of them were cases of addiction. And a lot of it now is is drug addiction because heroin's cheap, meth is cheap, 
Yep. And man, that stuff will mess you up. I've seen it happen to people. And, and so a lot of kids are getting pulled in that way. So did you, were you in and out of foster care? Were you back in your, in your family's home off and on? Yeah. So that, that, um, when I was taken away at 10 months, we ended up getting back and it, we kind of did the slingshot back and forth for a couple of years. Um, and I remember the last time I was taken away, I was probably about four years old. Um, so we, I, I was taken at 10 months. We were gone until I was about one and a half. Taken again when I was two, back when I was about three. And then I was taken again when uh, right around my fourth birthday. And uh, I hadn't started school yet. My sisters, my two sisters that were living with us at the time were uh, at school. And I just remember being picked up and taken away from my parents and with a social worker that I had never met before. It was a completely new person and um, took me away. And uh, that started the longest stint that I had in foster care, which basically I was in there until I was 13. Um, And so that's, yeah, that's when we, we, which I know is very common, did the back and forth thing, get back with our parents, get some sense of a a normalcy, get taken away. Um, And at that at that age, we were able to, me and my two sisters uh, were able to stay together for the most part. But as my older sister who was seven years older than I was, started to get older, we started to be more or separated more and more. And so, uh, yeah, when I was taken away at four, um, I was in foster care until I was 13. And, and basically never, my family was never the same. And we never all were back in the same home ever again or, or together at all. So. Wow. At four years old, you know, I have a friend of mine who talks about doing some early childhood work and, and uh, I've done some of it with some of my kids and talked about some of those earliest fears that they've experienced and that they can remember. And, um, I think it's called early memory work. I imagine you've got some really interesting early memories. Mm -hmm. How do you think those, those experiences from way back at, you know, little bitty has, shaped you as a man today? Oh, so much. I think, uh, <clears throat> so I've, I since know that I struggle with, or I sh- continue to struggle. It's ongoing, but, um, struggle with attachment from those times when I was younger. And, uh, I just, I think of all of the fears and how that those underlying fears and the, those fears that stem from those memories, uh, how they just continue to uh, show themselves even today. And so, um, what that did to, to me and how I viewed the world is I, I want to live with control of everything that I'm doing at all times, no matter what, that's where I'm feel most comfortable because of that experience of not being in control and being at the, um, kind of my life being at the expense and, and direction of adults who ultimately did not make the best decisions for me. And so, um, I just know that everything from then on was, was me seeking to have that control. And that ultimately that control was, I had the opportunity to make really good decisions or really bad decisions that impacted my life drastically. And as a kid making life decisions, you're going to make a lot of mistakes. And, and that's what I feel like I did. Um, just trying to figure it out on my own and learn on the fly. But that's one way that I know um, 
that continued throughout my life. So that continued with have, needing to have control in relationships, whether it's uh, intimate relationships or like friends, friendships or family, quote unquote. So being a foster care family means different, means something different, but family relationships, uh, like I was an athlete. So coaching relationships, teammate, rela- all those things were under the umbrella of needing to have control. And um, yeah, that that's something today, even as a, as a dad, as a husband that I ultimately cling, like want to cling to, but then have to check myself knowing that I'm not going to be in control of everything. I'm everything's not going to go the way I want it to. And even if I am in control, decisions and things can still happen that, that show me how not in control I am. And so I, I still wrestle and grip with that to this day. And it's something that my wife and our now daughter um, have a great role in helping me uh, better, better cope with that, not get rid of it. Cause it's, it's really a big part of me. Um, it's not something that's just going to be poof, like poof and be gone one day. They have to help me like live with it and understand like, Oh, that's a good time to have control. Uh, this is an unrealistic time to have control and just be able to navigate all of it. Well, as a teenager, I'm sure you made your fair share of poor choices because <laughs> I mean, yes. who hasn't? <laughs> if my dad was still around, he could tell you some stories, right? Mm-hmm. We're not even going to talk to my mom because she's a little too honest on some of those stories. <laughs> uh, but you know, we've all made some of those bad choices, but it sounds like it seems looking at your background, like you made some, some decent choices, at least, uh, you, you ended up in a real interesting place, um, playing for the NFL. Mm-hmm. That's one of those choices that, that how, how do you think that, that your experience growing up through, through foster care, through adoption, how did that play into your, your desire to play football, the, the way that you played and, and, and your ability to push all the way up to the top tier? Yeah, it was is such a big factor. And I was just having this conversation with uh, my brother-in-law the other day. Um, I, in my experience as a kid, everyone who was supposed to believe in me, who was supposed to speak truth and all these um, just like confident ideals into me as a child, didn't. I didn't have those voices in my or those adults speaking into my life telling me what I could be. I only had people telling me what I couldn't or um, who I was going to be just like in a negative sense. I didn't have these positive voices that were speaking into my life. And so at a very early age, I had to know that I had to be that for myself, that I had to be the only person in the room that needed to believe that I was going to be something. And that was the only voice that mattered. And that just so at a very early age, I just had a mindset that. I am not going to be the prototypical outcome of my situation. I'm not going to be that, that person that just allows a situation to uh, dictate where I'm going. I'm going to dictate what I'm going to do with my life and the outcome of it. And that just drove my, my passion for it. And so there was just a natural um, feeling or dr- like attraction I had towards athletics, towards football, towards basketball. So like, I understand that there may be someone out there that may have uh, be drawn toward music in that way or technology in that way. Mine just happened to be sports. And that mindset was something that I was able to apply to that and know that this is bigger than a game for me. This is, this is an opportunity. Um, so 
every time I was playing, it was, I was a very competitive person, but I, I always felt like it was bigger. So even as a kid at recess in fifth grade, like this isn't just a basketball game to me, this is so much more. And so that just drove me. And then after like going through the system and becoming older and getting into high school, I ran into my high school football coach who, um, really the first person that I met that I didn't like know in my upbringing that spoke like positive uh, truth into me as an athlete. And he really saw something in me. And, it, and that just gave me like the next level of motivation and confidence to go on, go on and do what all I thought was possible in my head. But it's, a, it's different hearing it from someone else who doesn't have to tell you that. Um, it's different to hear that from someone that you respect and look up to. And then like, so it just, it took off from there. And I um, went through recruitment and decided to go to the university of Minnesota. And there it was just like, okay, I'm one step away. And um, I'm already, I've already beat a lot of odds and, and shattered a lot of glass ceilings for myself being here. It's just dedication and commitment to uh, the plan that's going to get me to the next spot in which it did. So I, I would say, um, the resiliency that I built from being in foster care had the greatest impact on me as an athlete and my ability to be resilient in those times as well. Wow. It's amazing. The power of a good coach, whether we're talking football coach, basketball coach, or whether we're talking about just somebody who maybe is is an, an elder in your life where they can speak into your life. Yes. So I did, I did want to touch on something though. How, how many homes were you, were you in? Do you remember? Yeah. So I even have my documents now. I asked for them when I was in college and, um, over the, so when I went back and when I was four and then until I was about, or until I was 11, um, I stayed in over 20 different homes as I was trying to find placement and actually five, years of that. So when I, from six to 11, um, I was in one home. So for a long chunk of that time, I was in one place. And then for the rest of it, I was in over 20. And the one place that we stayed for a long time, uh, from when I was from six to 11, was actually an abusive, physically, mentally, and emotionally abusive home as well. And so, um, just the irony of like bouncing around so much and trying to find stability and normalcy, and then ending up in a place where you're going to, your normalcy is going to be abuse. Hey there, Foster Care Nation. We'd like to take a quick minute to step out of the podcast here and ask you guys for a little bit of support. If you could share an episode with people, friends, in a group, with family, anywhere where there's somebody who would like to hear this. Also, if you'd like to join us and support our mission, a couple dollars a month would be really helpful. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash foster care nation. Now back to the show. Um, where your normalcy is going to be like um, not being fed and all these different things that come with having a placement like that, that's not healthy. Uh, just that drastically impacted my opinion of, of the world and myself as well. Well, and that's one thing I want to touch on because, you know, I don't know your, your backstory at all. And I, a lot of people have this real negative view of foster care. Right. And I remember the one story that, that I can recall hearing when I was a kid was a lady somewhere out of Kentucky or something who had 
like 16 kids in a double wide trailer and she kept them in dog cages. Like that's the one story I remember having heard before my wife and I even looked at this. And that was just the only thing I had in my head. And now after having done it for a dozen years, you know, nobody wants to hear those stories and admit that they exist. But for us to pretend like it's not there is just, it's just intellectually dishonest. And I think it dishonors the, the, the truths of a, of a lot of lives. So I'm always open to, to have that conversation about those difficult placements you know, so was that the only really like bad placement that you had or were were there other ones that, that were bad as well? Honestly, that was the only really bad one. And unfortunately, it was just the only one that was willing to keep me and my two sisters. So the system was like, OK, all three of you can be together. We're going to keep you here. And that was against every one of our wishes. Um, and it, and as we got older, so I was there from six to eleven. So by time I was 11, my oldest sister 17. And so like you have all these dynamics playing on each other. It just so happened like I was at so many, what I can look back now and say, we're great homes. We're great foster parents that were committed to serving children in the right way. But I didn't stick because of the jagged and hardened view I was taking toward foster care. So when I was taken from my parents, I was so like upset and frustrated with that decision that I didn't speak for any of my foster parents. And so like I became mute in the process of not wanting to be placed in foster care. And so that just the, like the, the difficulty that that brought on the foster homes that I was placed in probably led to me not being there very long because of the not forming of, uh, any connection or relationship or whatever. And so those good ones, I didn't have an opportunity to stay in. And then you, you end up finding one that's willing to keep you longer. And so that's when that idea of like, okay, well, maybe like, maybe I can deal with this abuse for the sake of being in one spot. Maybe this is worth it for being able to stay in the same home as my sister. Maybe like all of these things are work, worth it. And you start to build up an idea in your mind that, that you deserve abuse, that that is what you have coming toward you. And so, um, yeah, I, I definitely have a different perspective now of foster care. And I, I can now know and understand the uh, lack of support that foster parents have and just how difficult it could be to be trying to make a difference in the system. And same thing with agency workers. They have a lot of stuff on their plate where they're unsupported and don't have the resources, et cetera. So like, now I have a full, uh, a wider view of the situation and don't just look at it like, man, all these foster parents are in it for the money, um, which is a common assumption to have. And, and so it's just, it's a broken system that, that needs more people willing to uh, commit to it without um, everything being perfect. And so, yeah. Yeah. Broken system is, is correct. Cause you know, people talk about being in it for the money and, and um, I actually, I think a podcast just released today on, on a, the tomorrow, the 2nd of March. And um, we, we were talking about just that. And, you know, it was another, another foster parent telling her story. And she, she kind of kind of laughs at that idea. And I, and I get it because, like, in it for the money, the people who are in it for the money, number one, if you're here taking broken kids into your home for money, you're an evil person. Mm-hmm. And we don't want you here. Nobody does. Just go find somewhere else, please. Um, but number two, in our state, if you're doing it for money, you're an idiot. 
<laughs> there is not much money there, you know. Basically, a couple hundred dollars a month to feed, clothe, care for a kid, pay for sports and programs and all that. If you do it right, you lose a little bit of money, but it's yep. okay. So uh, that that one has always been one of those things that just blows my mind. But we uh, we interviewed um, an actress, Jen Lilly, who talked about having run into some people at a conference in, uh, I believe it's California is where she lives, and she was talking about one particular woman who started telling her, oh, no, you have to get them rated this way and get them rated that way, and you can make a lot more money. And and so the, those people are definitely out there who are mm-hmm. in it just for that. And, and it's sad, but it, it is the case. Yep. So as, as you run through some of these, these homes, I mean – were you ever able to really form any any healthy attachment with any of your foster families? No, not at all. Um, the best I can describe it as, and it really even went throughout my um, teenage years and my early adulthood, of I felt like a tenant, like I was a renter in someone else's home, like I was renting out a room. Because a lot of those times, if you have a, a roommate that you end up getting and you don't choose, like you're just there. It's like, Oh, like we'll be in the kitchen at the same time, but we're not really engaging or you do something else on this holiday when I do something different on this holiday. And that, so that's what my experience was like. I never at no, at there was never a point where I felt like, man, I'm a part of what's happening here. I was either just along for it or I was excluded from it. And so, um, no, I, I can, I can confidently say I didn't form any attachment to my foster parents. Do you think that was intentional on your own part at all? I definitely think I contributed to it. I think it was my way of control and rebelling and making the situation harder for others because it was already hard for me. And, and that's where, uh, just that decision and that mindset that I chose to walk into foster care with can ultimately compound my own situation and make it harder and more difficult and more challenging to maneuver for myself. Like let's not talk about all the other relationships that is going to make it harder for the foster parents, the agency workers, my teachers, my own parents, when I like have visitation with them, et cetera, it makes it harder for all of those things. But, it makes it harder for me to navigate things and get a good understanding of what's a, what's a, what's an adult I can trust. Who is an adult I can trust. Who's someone that I can feel comfortable or myself with. I never got to experience that because I didn't allow myself to experience that. And so it's definitely like it comes from both sides and it's a double-edged sword, but um, yeah, I, that I definitely think I contributed to that. That's a pretty self-aware perspective for most people to eventually get to. What do you think was the impetus for finding that that re- part of your own reality? Mm, um, in college, so being uh, so, I played at the University of Minnesota, which is part of the Big Ten Conference. And um, as coming out of high school as an athlete, I was pretty highly recruited. I was some. There's a lot of difference recruiting services and things like that. But some sites had me ranked as like as high as the 11th best player at my position in the country. And so with that came a lot of opportunity to tour a lot of schools, go to a lot of different places, really go to school and get it paid for wherever I wanted to. And uh, I ended up choosing the University of Minnesota and being there was kind of a, 
a culture shock for me because I, my whole life I had lived in a place where I, in places that I felt like I really wasn't that wanted. Right. And so I didn't feel like I was a welcomed part of the community, wherever. So whether it's the school, whether it's a team, uh, whether it's the foster parents that I'm staying with or whatever, I didn't feel like I was like someone chose me to be a part of what's going on. I just felt like I was in uh, a burden to come along in whatever group that was. But now I'm going to college where I was actively recruited by all these schools and all these coaches and all these places. They wanted me to come and be a part of their university. And so going to school as a freshman and coming from a relatively small rural town, I'm in a big city and people know who I am without me ever having met them. And so like I'm experiencing a small fraction of fame and notoriety. And it was great to start because I'm like, man, I'm, I'm like cherished by these people. I, cause I was, I went to high school in Wisconsin, Wisconsin and Minnesota have the longest college football rivalry. Uh, and I was recruited by Wisconsin as well. And I chose Minnesota over Wisconsin, which was like unheard of in our state. And so like, I was even hated in the state of Wisconsin for that, but coming to Minnesota, people love that. And I, I embraced it. I was like, that means they love me. And I'm, I'm 18 years old navigating all this stuff by myself. Cause again, I don't have any parental guidance or anything that's helping me in making these decisions. So naively I am thinking that this is a reflection of how they see me. And so I'm going through my freshman year. I play as a freshman, start a couple games, uh, end up making um, the freshman all big 10 team and like everything's going great. And just one day, I don't even know what it was, but it was something through like social media or something where I just realized how, uh, how superficial everything that I thought was like real care or real relationship, real attachment or whatever, all of those things. I just realized how fake it was and how like I was being like welcomed because of what I was doing for other people, not because of who I was. And that then it like went from like, that's just a social media thing to that's most of my like relationships in real life. And that's, and then it just began this rabbit hole of like self-reflection, like, man, I can be mad at other people about this, but like, what have I done that has prevented this from happening on my, like, it's not like everyone has this um, superficial materialistic approach to being uh, in relationship with me. So what have I done? to contribute to that? And what have I done to um, influence that? And so that's when it really started and got the ball rolling and it just grew from there. You know, those, those years in that age, about, you know, 18 to 24, we have a lot of, a lot of self-realization that occurs there for sure. So yeah, that, definitely that's, that's a really, really interesting way to, to see your life through a different lens. And I think that's one of those things that we don't really realize is that that lens will constantly change through the rest of our lives. <laughs> Even yeah. as, you know, from a new dad to a somewhat experienced dad to a dad of that many kids that you can probably hear that one back there who just <laughs> got here, I think. And, you know, but, but once you, you have all these different experiences, it changes how you see not only your life in the moment, but you can kind of reframe what those stories you told yourself about your past history are. Yep, definitely. So 
Now, what about your uh, your parents? Did, have you ever reconnected with your birth parents? Yeah, so I actually, um, my parents split when I was in the system. And uh, my mom ended up giving up her parental rights uh, in, hope that, in hopes that we'd be adopted and kept together. Um, but she was really manipulated by my agency workers at the time and our foster parent because it was the uh, abusive foster home that we were with that was trying to convince my mom to let us adopt, uh, let her adopt us. And so she was manipulated and naive enough to give up her parental rights. And so she did. And so my dad, who all my siblings were half, and so my dad wasn't their dad, was unable to get them out of the system. He ended up getting me back when I was 13. And so I moved back with my dad at 13. I still have connection with my uh, sisters. I still have connection with my mom. Like this is when social media is getting bigger. Like I'm able to uh, have those long distance relationships with them. And that's all I ever knew. Like my mom was always still mom, but that relationship doesn't look the same as someone who grew up with their mom all 18 years of their life or childhood like that. It's not the same. It just can't be, but she's still my mom. And so, um, I do have a relationship with both of my parents. I ended up moving back with my dad. He got me back on a really random weekend out of nowhere with no like buildup. It just happened out of nowhere. Um, and so I was back with my dad from 13. Um, we moved to Wisconsin for eighth grade to get out of, we were in Peoria, Illinois to get out of the city there and just get to what my dad felt like was a better opportunity, move up to, um, and my dad was clean at this time, move up to Wisconsin where a couple of my siblings had ended up being located. My older siblings were adults and uh, <clears throat> my dad ended up relapsing. We fell into poverty. Um, I spent half of my eighth grade year homeless with my dad as we were going through school got back on our feet slowly, but surely. Then my dad got into some legal trouble with some of his friends and was incarcerated. And then I was put, um, was going to be put back to the foster care system. And then that same football coach that I was telling you about, um, actually, uh, became my temporary guardian and I ended up living with them for the rest of high school. So, um, I do have a relationship with my parents. I still like, we just spent Christmas with them this year. Um, and so we still have a relationship. We're still connected. But yeah, that's kind of how my um, experience with foster care and my parents finished out of my or of my childhood and when I aged out. You know, you're not the first person who's mentioned that they ended up coming into the system and someone from their school or coach, you know, teacher, somebody who who stepped up and said, hey, look, I'm willing to do this, but only if I get to take this particular kid in because they really wanted to uh, reach out and help a kid. I mean, uh, has that been a, an ongoing relationship that you've kept? Yeah, it's, they had, um, they're, they're an extension of my family. And so like, I, I don't use the word family in the same sense that other people might like, it's not biological. It's not like soup, like explicitly relational. Um, to me, my family are the people who, um, are willing to do like to care for me without any expecting anything in return. And because there's a lot of times where my actual biological family is unable to do something for me without expecting something from uh, back. And so that 
that unconditional aspect of, of caring for one another is how I define my family. And so my high school coach and his family is definitely, they're definitely a part of that. They have three of their own children, um, all of which are older than me, but they have a daughter and a son who are twins. that are only a year older than me. Um, and so like we went through high school together, we played sports together. We knew each other really well. And, um, I got married two summers ago and, um, they were both groomsmen in my, um, in my wedding and, and we, yeah, we still hang out. We, up until this point, we live 45 minutes from them. And so we see them occasionally and yeah, it's a great relationship. I'm, I'm a part of their family. I, it's not like I, I, I'm not officially like one of their kids. It's, it's a different relationship. Um, it looks a lot different, but I definitely feel like they're part of my family and I'm a part of theirs in some way, shape or form. So, uh, yeah, that's been a, that's been an awesome support system to have, um, ever since we built that relationship. You know, and I understand exactly what you're talking about with that sort of a relationship because my dad was a police officer and he, um, he kind of mentored a couple of young men over the years and where they were never in foster care. They were never in, in the system. they, they always had their biological family to whatever extent they could around them. Um, but you know, one, one of them, uh, let's see, his mom called the police one day and said, come deal with this boy before I abuse him. And my dad happened to be the one who showed up and found out he liked to do a lot of the things that my dad liked to do. You know, we, we would hunt and fish and all that stuff, being good Midwesterners and all that. And he wanted to do that kind of stuff. And he said, you know, keep, keep your, your head on straight, get your work on your grades, keep, you know, behave. And I'll take you with me. You know, we can go out. And to this day, I can take you to Josh's house. He's down the way here. And my other friend uh, who I kind of actually I grew up around my other buddy. Um, he, he lived across the street from us when we were young and they moved out. And he kind of he came back after after he had enough problems with some unsavory characters, we'll say uh, mm-hmm. that there was some folks who was looking to kill him because gangs and drugs are bad. And he got out of that and he showed back up on our front porch one day and said, Hey man, um, do you mind if I crash here for the night? I'm trying to get some things figured out and I can't drive you to his house. Cause he's a couple States away now, <laughs> but you know, th- those relationships were formed and, and they're brothers that don't have biology, yep. you know, and, and I, I often hear people use the, that phrase blood is thicker than water and they use it almost always is used wrong. Because the full phrase, if you know the full phrase, I believe it comes from maybe the Spartans or some something like that. It was from a, a warring tribe way back when. The full phrase is, the blood of battle is thicker than the water of the womb. Mm. You know, the people that we fight through life with, who share our struggles with us, that's way thicker than just the fact that we happen to share some DNA. Yep. And so I, I commend you for keeping those people in your life and, and them for, I mean, for all the listeners out there, anybody who's, who's coaching sports, I mean, you can see the, the impact it makes. Definitely. I mean, where do you think you would be if you hadn't run across people like that in your life to help kind of guide you? It's, it's definitely hard to think about. Cause like, I feel like I was on a path of some semblance of where I am now, but it wouldn't have been as high as it was if it were not for that. Like, I, I think my, I always had the dreams and aspiration of playing college athletics, but I don't know if I would have been able to experience it at the level that I did had my coach not come into my life. I don't know if um, I would have been able to, like, just, just 
carry all the burdens that came with going through what I went through by myself in my late teens, early twenties, like you said, figuring out who I am, 18 to 24. Um, I don't know if I would have been able to do that in the same way that I was with them and as a support system and things like that. And um, so definitely it's, and I, he would even say it. He, my coach isn't the reason for my success. He was just, a, uh, he was just a vessel to allow me to uh, like achieve this level of success that I did. And so I, I think that's what, that's the purpose of coaches. You're supposed to help people get all everything they can out of what they have. And, and I really think that my coach was able to do that uh, for me in life. Well, I have to ask because you mentioned that, you know, you have a mixed heritage. Mm-hmm. How's that played into the, to your experience at all? Or has Man. it? Oh, um, that's such a good question. So like my, my mom is uh, a white woman. She's from uh, California originally. And my parents are, a little bit older. They were born uh, in this. My mom was born in 59. My dad was born in 60. Um, and so they come from a little bit of a different time, but my mom's from the West coast. My dad's from Southern Mississippi. Um, and so they end up somehow crossing paths in Illinois uh, a long time ago. And for whatever reason, they felt connected and, and ended up together, but their experiences drastically impacted their relationship because they come from two different my dad came from a place where all he knew was um segregation and all he knew was um being told that he's less than or not as important and my mom came from a very progressive west coast that that stuff didn't quote unquote didn't exist there and so that was a role and then me being multiracial I grew for the first half of my foster care experience. I grew up in predominantly white foster homes. And then from basically five on, I was only in African-American foster homes. And so I have distinct points in my life where I know who I was and what I, what part of myself I felt most connected to shifted. Um, and then I like get back with my dad. We're in the inner city in Peoria. Um, And then I move out to rural Wisconsin. And so now I'm living where there's 3% diversity. Um, And so like that, that was a big change. And so I graduated high school from rural Wisconsin, go to the uh, city and Minneapolis or the twin cities in Minneapolis are super diverse and diverse more than just black and white diverse in all different type of ethnicities and nationalities. And, um, through that, I just had a unique ability to like, I learned through all that, how to navigate both and how to kind of bridge the gap because for my, um, for the white people that I know, I was always like a a stereotype breaker. Like I didn't fit the stereotypes or the thing, like I was good at, I was a good student. I was like, I was very like quote unquote respectful. All these like uh, ignorant stereotypes that a lot of people believe just because they are not in proximity to people who are different than them. I broke. So like there was always a conversation of, well, is this stereotype true or do I just not fit your stereotype? And so, uh, all of this is happening while you have kind of this surge of activism in the early 2010s 
of like you have Trayvon Martin, you have Mike Brown, you have all these other young black males that are killed in their um, their trials and their the things that come after that are really big news and they're impacting everyone's life uh, all the way up into George Floyd this past summer where we that's literally I've I've been on that same corner multiple times like I, I we experienced that up here in a, in a much more visceral way. But um, all of that, just like I'm figuring out who I am just as a human, as I'm also trying to navigate what it means to be multiracial in this super divisive time. And so it's something that I really took as a gifting and a blessing to be able to try to help people navigate the differences because I just have so many different experiences from both sides that can shed light in a way that is can't be done by everyone. And so um, I just, as I started to really come to grips with who I am and who I was in this world and where I fit in, I also started to take it as an opportunity to try to help people, other people be empathetic and be able to um, care about other people's experiences that may be different than theirs. And so um, I've had so many great conversations with people um, that have really changed their perspective because of just conversations that I was able to share with or have with them or experiences I shared with them from just that they would never have thought of from their own experience. So it's played a big role and I think it will continue to play a big role. I have like now having a daughter who's multiracial, like it's just going to continue to grow from there and on the desire to be a foster parent and potentially adoptive parent to like have both white, brown, black, Asian, Hispanic, all different types of, of children come through our home. I think it's going to continue to be a really big, unfortunately, a really big theme in my life and my family. That's interesting because, you know, our family is, I guess you would call it multiracial probably. Um, my wife's maiden name is McClanahan. I'll give you two guesses <laughs> where her, uh, where her ethnicity comes from. You know, it's, you're either Irish or Scottish, one of the two, right? Mm-hmm. And, and she looks the part, fair skin, you know, red hair. Uh, yeah, she, she's as Irish as they come. And I am not. I guess you would say, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> as a matter of fact, after having done the DNA tests, I had sent off to do, I think I did 23 and me and my okay. brother who is, um, basically a younger, thinner, less facial hair, more hair on top of his head than me <laughs> kind of guy. <laughs> we, other than that, we look a lot similar. Um, he, he did the, uh, the other one, the, um, the ancestry.com. Ancestry. Yeah. And so his came out with a little bit more detail. Mine came up with, um, it more or less just said yes. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah, it, it's a lot of European is what it said. And so yeah. I'm, I'm guessing the ambiguous brown look probably has some, maybe some Spanish in it. And, um, and I, ironically, I know that from my mom's side, we have some, some Irish in it as well. Mm. However, I don't fit those stereotypes myself. And I've, I've lived a life like that. And my yeah. wife being so, so stereotypically Irish we have mixed kids in our fa- in our family. Mm-hmm. Our two oldest sons um, that are the the oldest was her biological son that she brought into our marriage, and then the second oldest is our son together, our biological son together. They're both just as pale as her. 
<laughs> they both have red beards, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> and and then our younger kids are, you know, we've got one that's like super pale white, blue eye. I mean, blonde hair, blue eyes, cute as a button, right? And then I've got uh, I've got some mixed kids too that look we look like a his and hers family, except mm. that we can't really nail down what all that is. And the biology I find is something that so many people find way more important than than I think I ever did. Because people have asked me hundreds of times, what are you anyways? And I love that question because it makes no sense. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, I, a person? Yeah. American is my best guess because I was born here. That's all I really know. But it plays so much into, into the background that people bring into their life. And I, and I see that a lot. You know, you mentioned Ferguson or Mike Brown that happened in Ferguson. That's that's just a few miles up the road from us. Well, more than a few. It's probably 40 minutes up the road, but I'm in Ferguson all the time. And I've, I've seen a lot of that stuff going on. Man, there's, you're right. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of problems. And it's, it's really wretched into every community. You know, white, black, brown, you name it. Every community has been impacted by that to some extent. And it's really hard for us sometimes to overlook all of that and just realize that what we're trying to do here is help a kid. And I really don't care what he tans like in the summertime, you know, <laughs> because, um, I mean, quite frankly, the, my, my cute little blonde hair, blue eyed boy with pale skin, he is more of a pain in the butt in the summertime because he, you got it. Like you got to have that, that sunscreen on the pump for him. <laughs> <laughs> that boy will burn. Other than that, I don't, I don't think it makes a difference in my, in my experience, but I know that a lot of our parents came from a different world. And that's, that's really affected our, you know, our biological family, you know, our families of origin. For some people, that means more to them than others. Have, did you experience that when you were in care, problems from their, their biological family? Did they treat you differently? Yeah, it was like, yes. To answer the question, yes. I think there's just a lot of, like, I really feel like now I'm at a point where I don't get as angered or as, upset with ignorance because I know it's just that I know there are things that I'm ignorant about and that um, I may say the wrong thing at some point and it's going to frustrate someone who's more knowledgeable about it. That's not going to ever be an excuse for me not to, to grow or learn or seek to understand and grow and learn. But at the same time, I can give others the benefit of the doubt uh, and still hold them accountable, but give them the benefit of the doubt that, you just don't know. And it's, and this is what I say often is it really comes down to proximity. Like how often are you putting yourself in a position where you're around people who don't look like you, who didn't live the same life as you, who don't have the same experience as you, because then that ignorance starts to reveal itself to us. Like, Oh, that stereotype really doesn't make a lot of sense. Or, um, the fact that you, um, that you are all of from these, you are all of these different European nationalities and ethnicities and all of this jumbled up into one person, right? You don't fit any of those. So like if I'm around people in, pro in, in proximity enough with people, I can start to understand that we all don't fit in a box, that we just because we check something off on a census doesn't mean that we're all going to be the exact same across the board. And so 
as 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 a kid being in those situations you hear all of the like stereotypes and you get i i've been in foster homes and i've been told like we don't sag our pants here and i have a belt on and my pants are just barely under my belly button like i'm not even remotely close to sagging and wearing my pants and my knees but that's something that this person really felt like they needed to tell me as a kid of like we don't we don't do that or that um being told by a friend's parent um stop showing my son vulgar music when i know that he's the one that showed me this song and so like all of these different stereotypes that i'm having to navigate as a kid really i don't hold it against the people but at the same time i i i do feel like the ownership is on adults if you are going to be caring for people from different experiences to do your homework to educate yourself um because i and this is something i've seen so often of when you are in a context where you are not growing up or learn like learning about the world and or in and around people who look and like who look like you or have a similar experience to what you do you wake up at some point in your life and you question everything you know and there's this like, and maybe someone listening knows what I'm talking about, but there's just like awakening that happens in that 18 to 24 year old range where either you as an adult, as a parent, as a caregiver, you can be a part of that, or you can be the person that has prevented that from happening. And because it's going to be one of the two, the kid is going that that child, that young adult is now going to look at it as you kept this from me. Or you were a part of like opening up this door for me. And that's really what it is. Cause every child, no matter if you go through foster care or not, they're trying to figure out who they are. They're trying to figure out where they fit in the world and they're trying to figure out who cares about them. And so you're not doing anyone any favors or any child any favors if um, they get out into the real world and they have no idea what it's like to be them or like what it's like to be them from other people's person. So that first time, like I know, I know people who didn't quote unquote experience racism because they didn't know what it was. And so when they leave their town or their context and go into a bigger environment and experience that it's earth shattering because it's in a completely different tone. It's in a completely different aggression or impact. And it's just like, now I don't know what's real. I don't know what, what is, what's real. And you go into this deep dive of trying to figure out what it is. And so, um, that, yeah, I had to navigate oftentimes being the only person of color in the room. I had to navigate that for myself. Um, luckily I had so many different vast experiences that I, I at least was able to make some sense of it as a kid. There's some people who don't. And so they're unable. And then there's this awakening and reckoning that happens later. And so all I, all I do and then try to encourage people to do, if you are having, and you can be a black foster parent, having a white child in your house. The reality is that the same thing is true for that child. If they're growing up without people around them that are influencing their life, that can shed some light on what it is to be you in the world. You need to make sure that they can experience that somewhere. And so, um, yeah, it's unfortunate, but it's it's a reality now. And so I think that's a great question. 
It's interesting you mentioned that. If I remember right, it was Kevin Hoffman who wrote the book Growing Up Black and White, who was who was a, a young I believe Kevin was a was black and um I don't think he was mixed. I can't remember. He might have been mixed. Um but he grew up in a white home and so did um I don't know, are you familiar with Anthony Trucks? Yeah, I just I I did. I just watched and listened a little bit about what you guys are talking about. I thought it was great. Yeah, Anthony has a great story about that as well. Because it's we we start with these assumptions about who someone is based on looks because we're super smart like that. We're here in the 21st century and uh maybe not all of us, right? But we think, you know, we think we know something and oftentimes we we end up doing more damage than than good if if we're not paying attention to that. Yep. The truth is is at the end of the day, we're all people. And most of us, if you go do the DNA study like I did, you'll pretty quickly find out you are not black or white or Latino or some specific type of Asian, Korean, Japanese, Chinese, whatever. Chances are you're you're probably like me and you got a long list of things in there. Definitely. I did. I did ancestry as well. And it was like 51 percent from like different African countries and placements, but then also 49% from European countries. And like, there was nothing was greater than like, I feel like 19 or like 21%. That was the greatest percentage I had. And then everything, it went all the way down to like 2%. So it's definitely just random concoction of all these different backgrounds and ancestors and all these different places. And I, like you said, I think that's the same for a lot of people, everybody. Yeah, there are very few people. I don't care what the um, what the supremacist of whatever race you want to talk to say. There, none of us have a hundred percent purity. Yeah, and I think that's just fine as long as we remember that we are one hundred percent human. And mm-hmm. if we focus on that, we can work together instead of working on hating each other. That that's been one of the powerful stories that that I've seen come through a lot of foster care journeys. It's also been a real a real struggle point for a lot of people, depending on how they approach it. Um, I want to go back to what we talked about earlier. The the victim victor vessel. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think victim is too hard to figure out, right? Yep. I mean, most kids who've been in foster care can pretty quickly identify with some form of victimhood. You've mm-hmm. probably had a parent who did something, a biological parent who did something wrong, um, something that was focused on on not taking care of you as a kid. The victor part, you know, stepping to that, you know, talk about that. How, how do you how do you see the, the the way for kids to move from being that young victim to finding your your victorship, if you will? Yeah, and so like the premise behind uh, the three V's, and I call them the three V's of adversity, um, is that these are different mindsets we have when we go through challenging things, when we go through and experience stuff that aren't the way they were intended to be. These are mindsets we can default to in a way. And so um, the Victor one, again, like you said, I think it's very easy for people to view that one as like the one we should be at. That's the desire. And what I was what I was talking about with the Victor mindset is that one, you show the ability to be resilient. Like if you are a Victor, that means you have shown the ability to overcome to stand up against and defeat whatever it is that that is in front of you, that is challenging, that is in your way to get to where you want to go. 
In the same way, though, and I know this to be true for myself and other scenarios and situations I've talked about, with that same victor mindset, you are unable to identify what's something to be overcome and what's something like that shouldn't be. So like everything is viewed as an obstacle, good, bad, um, beneficial, harmful. So like you view that foster parent that really wants to help you and that's there and that's that wants to care for you. You view, view them as an obstacle. In my situation, I view the foster parents that I met immediately going into foster care and viewed them as opposition because they were the person that was keeping me from my parent. Um, and so in this victor mindset, it's you really just you're unable to identify what's something that I should fight against and what's something that I shouldn't. And so you really start to take this approach and and bulldoze everything around you no matter what. And it's like it's like um uh just kind of spraying everywhere so you can fight and claw and scratch in every which way direction. But when you're successful and it's the right opposition, like great. So when I'm resilient and um aggressive in football, like beautiful. It's everything comes in alignment, everything is exactly the way it's supposed to be. But when I have my high school football coach and his family are just trying to help me and be there and be a support system, but I'm unwilling to let them in. And I'm unwilling, like, I'm viewing that as a battle. Like, you're not going to beat me uh, and make me break and and give in to letting you know about what I'm struggling with or what I'm going through. So it it really becomes this uh, you or me, you versus me, zero sum game that happens when we operate in the victor mindset. And it just doesn't take into account anyone else. It's it's all about me. It's not um, it's not what about that other person that's in foster care. It's not about what about that other kid in my classroom that doesn't um, have the perfect life or the perfect situation. It's all about me. And either I win and you lose, or you win and I lose. And I I don't ever want to be on the losing end again. And so that's what I, I talk about in that victor mindset. And I, I think it's different because a lot of people do see it and see it as this victorious, um, glamorous thing. But even in our life, when we think of winning uh, victors, winning is not everything. You can win that battle and lose the war. But because our society just builds us up to think that you need to win, win, win this capitalist mentality, um, like I just need to overcome and seize the day and all these things. And you just burn a lot of bridges and a lot of people and a lot of like really cool connections and opportunities along the way without really understanding what you're doing. And so, yeah. Um, so then that's what I identified as the vessel mindset where you are now looking at what you're facing in your situation as an opportunity to help and, and benefit those around you, those that may come after you. You don't have to know them. You don't have to be connected to them. So it's it's looking at things in a very holistic way of what I do impacts others. It has a ripple effect. And so how I like I back to the example of being um, African or multiracial in a predominantly white setting. What I, I have to have this awareness that what I do impacts the next African-American kid or whoever that walks through that building, whether I want to be aware of it or not, it's these, there are things that there's this vessel mindset where I am 
cognitively thinking about the experience of others as I'm going through what I go through. It's no different than as a, as a foster child, right? Of when I go to a home, how I treat, how in it, maybe it should or shouldn't be this way, but how I treat or respond to a foster parent may impact that foster parent's response to the next kid that comes through their home. And so how do I want that to be? What mark do I want to leave? Um, me now as a speaker, as, as someone who's like actively trying to be an advocate in the space, what, what I do, I, I'm doing to try to positively influence whoever I can in the foster care space so that they can see the, the opportunity that they have to be a vessel in someone else's life. So it's no different. Let's flip it um, on its head. So instead of the child or the, the foster youth that's experiencing this, let's talk about the foster parent. As a foster parent, you like you have an opportunity to be a vessel to really influence the the life, the experience, and the lens that the foster youth you serve or work with that they view the world in. You have an opportunity to be different than every other adult that may has may have been in that child's life up until that point. So being a vessel, you are fully accepting the the responsibility for your your role in that person's life at that point in time. And it's not someone that's directly like you don't benefit directly from them succeeding or them uh, being cared about in that way. You just know that you're doing it because it's the right thing to do. And so, um, yeah, that's where those three mindsets come from and, and where I think we can help foster youth or help people move through those specifically is through what I call a, a care model. And it's just an acronym for care. Uh, the C is compassion. I think compassion is one of the most critical components because compassion is not just feelings or, or empathy or sympathy towards somebody. It's all of those feelings that come with that driving you to action. So if I'm, be, if I'm a compassionate person, I don't sit here and feel I'm like, oh, it's so bad. I feel pulled and moved by those emotions into action. Action is sustainable. Emotion is fleeting. And so like when I'm, when those emotions drive me into action, I'm then able to care, to be actively present in that child's life. And that's what gets the ball rolling to help a youth move through those mindsets. Um, the second one, I, I think this is, can easily be overlooked in a lot of things, but A in the care model is authenticity. Authenticity in general is so important especially in the foster care space, because you have youth and children who have literally lived their life around people who are BS, who do not keep it straight, who like, so that radar, that ability to identify who's here for me, who's not here for me, or, I mean, you might incorrectly identify who's not here or who is here for you, but you're able to really know who's not here. Those people who aren't there um, for your best benefit, who don't really care about you, who may not have your best interests in mind or who just flat out are not being real to who they are in that moment, they're able to identify. I was able to identify and it immediately shut, made me shut down so many times. So that authenticity is so real because if you're not someone that's going to be a foster parent and take someone in, you can't expect to have a role in that child's life. If you're saying that that's what you're going to do, you have to be authentic to your role in that child's life. A great example I have of that is when I was in elementary, I had uh, 
my um, janitor at my elementary school. She lived like in my same neighborhood. She was like two blocks away. So she kind of knew of our family. And this was the home that I was being abused. in. And so she kind of knew of my situation in our family that we were staying with. But she was our janitor in our school. My janitor had no power or agency in order to like actually change my situation. She wasn't going to take me in. She wasn't going to become a, a foster parent and adopt me and change my life. But she was authentic to her role. And so what I mean by that is she sought me out at times. She, she, gave, she made sure I had food at lunch. She made sure that if I was in the hall or something that she would just check on me. And it was a, it was a, it was so intentional in a very like non monumental way that I knew that she was doing it on purpose. And I knew she was doing it because she saw me and what I was going. And to me, that's what I, I, that is the textbook example of what it is to be authentic to your situation when you're trying to serve youth in the foster care system. If you're not a foster parent, you don't, everyone's not called to be one. Don't, Say you're going to be, don't imply anything that's not true to who you are. Be exactly who you are. Uh, and that's all you need to do. And so that's the A in the model. The R is resilient. Um, I live like I will live and die by this, but the resilience that comes with being a foster, uh, child, it's just, it's, I, I tell people all the time, adversity was the only thing foster care ever gave me. And luckily, resilience came of that. And so when I think of foster youth, that resilience is going to be present. So if we're going to talk about like that positive and negative resilience. So like if I'm not if I'm a victor mindset, I'm going to be resilient, whether the thing in front of me is good or bad. Um, as adults in the lives of those youth who are resilient, we have to match their resilience. It may not be as natural to you or something that just. Um, you've built up as a skill, but if you are going to want to have an impact in the life and shift their mindset, uh, to a way to one that's going to be beneficial in their life, you have to be resilient because there's going to be times they hate you. There are going to be times where they can't stand you, don't want to talk to you, don't trust you, um, take advantage of you. All of those things can happen or, and probably are going to. You have to be resilient if you want. And I know, Jason, you definitely would understand this as a foster parent. Just the resiliency that that comes into play when serving kids who've just not had the best situation growing up. And so in this care model, that's that's an important step as we try to shift that mindset. And then the last one, the E, is empowerment. So after we're able to be compassionate and we're driven into action, after we're we understand authentically who we are and the role we play, after we are being resilient for these youth, we have to empower them. We have to show them that you, they can take um, ownership and control for their situation and, and that they're trusted to make good decisions. Because reality, we talked about it. You're, a lot of times you're not. But if you're able to in this space, in a space that's kind of a controlled environment um, to make bad decisions, you're not going to make them when they matter the most. You're not going to. Um, you're not going to make disastrous life decisions if you have the opportunity with some sort of a security blanket. To, to make bad ones to start. And so um, that empowerment phase is so important because we can, <clears throat> we can care about the kids as much as we want. We can uh, be true to ourselves. We can be resilient, stick, stick by them through everything. But if we're never giving them the keys 
telling them, I trust you to do it now, none of it's going to stick. And so that's, that's all of that stuff, putting your money where your mouth is and being like, here, I trust you to do this. And then still loving them, still caring about them, still being authentic and all those things, even when they make that. I really hate the way you put that because (laughs) I have a 15 year old who's about to start driving and you're talking about giving them the keys, give them the keys, (laughs) give them the keys, but I got to sit in the passenger seat, man. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Not the first one I've done that with though. No. And like, that's a perfect example. Like as we're giving them the keys, we're right there. You may not have the driver's ed steering wheel and brakes on your side of the car when that's happening. But we get, when we give them the keys, we got to be there with them. It's not go do it on your own. It's like, I trust you and I'm here with you. Oh yeah. So that empowerment is so, so crucial. Yeah. I don't have the the brakes on my side of the car, but after four kids, I've got a dent over there in that floorboard already. (laughs) (laughs) The, the Flintstone feet, the Flintstone brakes. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> That's the fun. I, you don't have one old enough to have that experience yet, but that learning yeah. to drive, it's it's a metaphor for life for sure, but it's a moment sometimes. It's yeah. a moment. Well, man, yeah, I, I appreciate not- you coming in here and, and telling us your story today and, and talking your way through this. Um, it's just, man, you've got a whole lot to say, and I think people need to, people need to hear it. I appreciate that, Jason. Yeah. Uh, thanks for having me. Thanks for giving people this uh, platform to to share what's going on in their life and just continue to shed light on uh, on foster care and the unparalleled journey that it is. And so, um, yeah, I appreciate you. Awesome, man. Okay, Foster Care Nation. Thanks for listening to Galen's story. Now take his knowledge and wisdom to heart so that you can create love and healing in your family and community. Be sure to come back next week. We have new episodes every Tuesday. If you'd like to share your story as a guest, you can reach us at jason at fostercarenation.com. You can connect with other like-minded people at Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash fostercareuj. Don't forget, we have a Patreon where you can support us on our mission for as little as $5 a month. It's patreon.com slash fostercarenation. The links to everything are in the show notes on your podcast player or over at fostercarenation.com. And as always... You are so super awesome. I think you got so cool, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening.